chapter 9, is where we are tonight. We're going to start off with verses 9 through 5. But what I want to kind of set you up with is the fact that, keep in mind what, what Paul has been saying in our study. He's been laying the foundation that Jews and Gentiles alike are both guilty in sin. Uh, and uh, he said that uh, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. You remember that? How he just pretty much shot down anybody thinks they can be legally righteous in God's eyes. He blew that apart. He then also went on to say that circumcision is of no value unless you've been circumcised in the heart. And uh, that kind of made the Jews a little upset, I'm sure. And then he went on to say that just because you're a descendant of Abraham, don't think you're getting to heaven. And so with all that in mind, and as he's been dealing with the fact that that salvation is coming by faith, um, he now deals with a nagging question that is going to come up. Because he's just finished chapter 8, and how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And with this, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now, now look closely. Look up for Paul even to make this kind of a statement. You, you can tell how serious he is. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Christ is my witness, he's saying. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it. In the, I'll, I'll even confirm it in the Holy Spirit to you, he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Here, he's in this whole dealing with how God has offered this salvation that's been God's plan all along, he's about to show in time, uh, that is through faith alone, not because of your heritage or anything like that. And then if he's dealt with nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, he has to deal with this issue that has come up. And what about Israel? I mean, these are my people. These are the people that, that I care about. And he goes, I'll be honest with you, and I'm, gonna be, I'm, not tell, I'm not lying when I say this. He says, if I could be cursed and sent to hell, and that would cause the Jews to be saved, I would do it. That's how strongly he wants the nation of Israel to believe in Jesus Christ. And so this nagging question comes up now. Has, and this is what I want you to write down. Had God's purpose for Israel failed? No. Alright? Had God's purpose for Israel failed? And had God cast off Israel forever? No. The answer to those questions are no. But we're going to deal with that in the next few chapters. And so you need to kind of understand where we're going now. Well, when we get into chapter 9 and 10 and 11, tonight we're only going to cover chapter 9, even if we can get all the way to the end. You need to understand, he is now dealing with these two nagging questions. Has God's purpose for Israel failed? And has God cast off Israel forever? Now, real quickly, some denominations teach that God has. We'll get into that in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 11. But let me just touch on the fact that there are some, some denominations that teach what we call replacement theology, where God has rejected Israel because they rejected the Messiah. And now all the promises that were made to the nation of Israel are going to be fulfilled in the church. And they have a weird view of eschatology, which is end times and all this. And we'll get into that in a lot more detail. I won't touch on that tonight. But there are some that think that God is done with Israel. And the Bible is very, very clear that that's not the case. All right? So now Paul's going to answer these questions in three main ways in the verses to come, which is chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. So here's the, here's the three main ways that he's going to answer these two questions. And having these answers will help you in your study of where we're going to go. First thing he says he's going to deal with this is he's going to establish God's sovereign right to conduct his kingdom affairs as God sees fit. Alright? That's where we're going to go tonight. It's going to be it's one of the hardest passages in the scriptures to really deal with. But Paul is establishing God's sovereign right to conduct his kingdom affairs as he sees fit. Alright? That's going to be Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 29. Alright? We'll read it one more time. Romans 9, 6 through 29 is dealing with how Paul establishes God's sovereign right to conduct his kingdom affairs as he sees fit. Alright? The second way he's going to deal with these two questions is going to be this. That the Jews were responsible, not God, for their spiritual plight because they rejected Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith. The Jews were responsible, in parentheses, not God, for their spiritual plight 
because they rejected Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith. That's going to be Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 21. I'm going to say it again for those that are taking this down. The Jews were responsible for their spiritual plight not because they rejected Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith. Romans 9, 30 through 10, 21. Anybody else need that one? One more time? One more time. The Jews were responsible, not God, for their spiritual plight because they rejected Christ and the righteousness that comes by faith. Those of you listening on the website, this is some really good listening right now, isn't it? uh, Actually, hopefully you're taking notes as well. That's Romans 9, 30 through 10, 21. Alright? Third thing that he's going to use to deal with this, these two nagging questions is, number three, in spite of Israel's present spiritual blindness, God has not cast them off forever. In spite of Israel's present spiritual blindness, God has not cast them off forever. That's Romans 11, 1-32. Romans 11, 1-32. In spite of Israel's present spiritual blindness, God has not cast them off forever. All right. 11, 1 11, chapter one, chapter eleven, verses one through thirty-two. Yes. Are we off to speed? So, with what you have in your notes, what are we going to be dealing with tonight in chapter nine? His sovereignty. His sovereignty. Paul establishes God's sovereign, sovereign right to conduct His kingdom affairs as He sees fit. Now keep in mind, as we're about to read this passage, and if you've read it on your own to study up, you probably found yourself saying, ooh, does it say what I think it's saying? And and there's some things in here that are going to come across that might, in your spirit, you wonder why you tend to not agree with it, and I'm going to hopefully, by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, show you that you have a reason why you have a tension there, because it could be interpreted the wrong way, and it's not what Paul is saying. And so we'll go there. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Alright? He says, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Alright, now let's dive into this one. Alright? What is Paul trying to establish right now? In answer to those two nagging questions of his plan of Israel failed and had he cast them off forever. What's he trying to establish right now? Who is Israel? In time, we're going to get to, well, who is Israel? Yes, that. But remember that first note I gave you. What's the first thing he's trying to establish? God's sovereignty. Now, when we hear God's sovereignty, there are those out there going to tell you that in God's sovereignty, he has pre-chosen who's going to be saved, and who won't be saved. That does not line up with the whole of Scripture. That does not line up with the heart of God and what the Scripture reveals is who God is. So if you have anybody tell you that God has chosen these people to be saved and He's chosen these people to go to hell, and that we really don't have a choice, the the whole whole attitude or idea of man having the ability to say yes or no for salvation, they say is is not there. They say God's already chosen who's going to be saved. Yeah, well, what about Jacob and Esau? Well, hang on. That's what, that's what, that's what we're getting. So I said, hang on, we're going to deal with that. But, uh, but hear me very clearly. The Bible is very, very clear that that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, we have to understand, though, in order to go where God wants us to go, we have to, at the same time, establish God's sovereign right to do it however He wants. And that is what Paul is doing here first. 
It's because there are going to be those who are going to say, oh, wait a minute, that's not fair, that's not right. You know, the Israelites were trying, you're going to see them get this in chapter 9. The Israelites were trying to be saved, they were trying to be righteous, they were trying to keep the law, they were trying to do the things that God said. And now you're saying to me that these Gentiles who didn't even work at it are going to get go to heaven? You know, and, and, and Paul is, before he answers those questions, saying, let me just show you something. He said, first off, it has been very clear from the beginning that not everyone who descends from Israel is Israel. All right? Uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. God's covenant promises were never made to all of Abraham's descendants. Now, if you say, wait a minute, didn't God make a covenant with Abraham that his descendants? Now, actually, the Jews would even agree with the statement I just made to you that God's covenant promises were not made to all of Abraham's descendants. Here's how I can say the Jews would agree with it. Ishmael, is he a part of this covenant promise? Remember who Ishmael is? When he actually, well, um, Abraham tried to help God, slept with Hagar, Sarah's servant, and produced Ishmael. The Jews would even say, well, no, 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 God's covenant promise of Abraham, they don't go through Ishmael. Well, is that not Ishmael a descendant of Abraham? Firstborn son. It was his firstborn son, but not through Sarah. Go real quickly to Genesis chapter 18. Go to bookmark here. I'm sorry, Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, verses 17 through 19. Alright, here in Genesis chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And if only Ishmael would be the one that you give your blessing to and your, your promise through. And then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Okay? And then he goes on to say, As for Ishmael, I'm going to bless him as well, but my covenant is coming through who? Right. Through Isaac. Now, Look here in Romans chapter 9. Why was it through Isaac? Look at verse uh, verse 8. All right, actually, go back and look at verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's the passage we just read from. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of what? The promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. All right, now before we go any further, let me also clarify, if, if you were to go look at Genesis chapter 25, and you don't have to go there now, but in Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that after Sarah dies, Abraham marries another lady named Keturah, and he produces sons through her. These are descendants of Abraham as well. Is the covenant coming through them? No. No. So just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you're automatically in the promise. Remember the Jews would say, our father is Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. And here Paul is saying, if the Jews would be faithful enough to even think back, they would even agree that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're automatically in because there are many descendants of Abraham that they would even say, well, those guys don't count. I know Ishmael's a descendant, but no, 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 not him. Oh, oh and, and I know the sons of Keturah and Abraham. Well, we're not talking about those guys, but the rest of us, you know, we're the ones. And it's not just because of your heritage or your lineage that's going to get you in. All right? This is kind of another prelude to Mary, the lineage coming through Mary. Uh, there's lots of it actually there uh, if you go back and look at the, the whole thing the whole plan of the lineage and who begat who and who begat who you'll even notice there are some Gentiles in, the, in, in that lineage they're not showing to the Israel, to Israel that women are just as important to him without question yeah. without question and again it's through Sarah and then it's going to be Isaac and, and, and from there but so we want, what you get to understand is God's covenant promises applied to the children of the promise those who are of faith. Now, write this in your notes, and this will help you. 
This is how God predetermined it to be. Okay? This is how God predetermined, you can write predestined, if you want to use that word, how God predetermined it to be. Before the creation of the world, God predetermined that those who would come to him would come through Jesus by faith in the promise. This has been taught all the way through scripture, but unfortunately because of the fallenness of human nature, we have a tendency to take it and make it apply or twist it the way we'd like it. And over time the Jews just became very proud that they were descendants of Abraham, when all along the scripture didn't say just because you were a descendant of Abraham, it said the covenant promise from God is coming through those who are of the promise of faith. Okay? Alright? So, his first statement is, just not all who descend from Israel are Israel. It's only those who are of the promise. And that includes more than just Jews, correct? Mm-hmm. You and I that are Gentiles are a part of the nation of Israel, if you will, in that sense. We're descendants of Abraham in that sense because of the fact that we have responded in faith to the promise. Okay? Now, that doesn't totally get rid of Israel, and there's no more Israel. We're going to get to that in, in weeks to come. But for now, just understand... Paul is laying the foundation that God, in his sovereign choice, predetermined that those who would come would come through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, Jim, where does it say that? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, one of these passages that people have tried to use to say that God chose who was going to be saved before he created the world. And it does not say that if you look closely. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to go all the way to verse uh, 10. Starting in verse 3. Chapter 1, Ephesians, verses 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one who loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So, at the end, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that who's Lord? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the beginning, before the creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three one, together, pre-planned, that he would make up a group of people that would bring him glory, but how they would do it is by having faith in his Son. So, what has been preplanned? Who's going to be saved? Not the who, but the how. Exactly. It's not the who, but the how has been predetermined. Okay? Keeping that in mind, then, will help you as we start getting into these other passages now that look like God's chosen who's going to be saved and who isn't. Right now, he just, my, what I wrote in my notes is, is to further prove God's ability to sovereignly choose, not the who but the how, of his salvation plan, God, Paul used, I mean, the Jacob and Esau story. Alright? So that's where we're going to go next. We're back to Romans chapter 9. Unless anybody has any questions where we're at so far. Alright? Romans chapter 9. Now where we just left off. Verse 10. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We'll come back to that last verse in a little bit. Let's just deal with the first part. Alright? Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, when did God choose that he was going to continue his work through Jacob and not Esau? Before they were born. Before they were born. Before they were born, he chose that. Why? According to this passage. Why? Why did he do it that way? Further his promise. Further his 
The way you want things to go. Yeah, you have to interpret it the way you want things to go, which is what? His sovereign will. His sovereign will. It's done by his choosing, not by man's effort. But his choosing is not, I've chosen Ken to be saved and Kathy not to be. That's not what it means. He's chosen, though, to show us that it's what his plan for salvation has nothing to do with us. Has everything to do with him. And he has pre-chosen ahead of time that he was going to make a people for himself that would follow him in faith. He pre-chose that he was going to make a nation like that out of Abraham. Abraham said, hey, I'll help get this thing started. And God said, no, 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 no. It's not you. It's all me. And I'm going to do it in such a way that everybody knows that it's me who has done this. I'm going to use a hundred-year-old man and a barren woman to be able to produce. Because let's be honest. Let's be honest about this. Abraham slept with Hagar. She got pregnant. Mm -hmm. Abraham slept with Keturah. We're talking. Remember how many years old he must be now when after Sarah dies? And, 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 And he marries Keturah and pumps out boys? Abraham wasn't impotent. All right? Let's be honest. The reason why Sarah wasn't producing was Sarah's womb was dead. God used an old man and a woman with a dead womb to produce Isaac. So that everybody would know God did this, not Abraham and Sarah. And now, he pre-chose that Jacob was going to be the one he worked his plan through, not Esau, again, just to show this is God's working, not man. See, when we have those, we take these passages, and we'll have some preachers try and tell us, that means God's chosen who's going to be saved and who's not. That's not what the Scripture is saying at all. Because throughout the Scripture, you see things like this. Whosoever will. God so loved the world. That who would ever believe in Him? It's not, He hasn't pre-chosen who will be saved, but He is showing that this whole salvation thing is something that He has predetermined from the beginning of creation, and that it would come how? Through Christ. But what? By faith alone. It's not because I'm a good person, because I figured this out. It is just simply, God has done this. I say thank you. I say thank you. That's all it is. I actually believe that the Bible might teach that Jesus' death on the cross has actually forgiven everyone's sins. Yeah, they have to accept it. I'm not saying everybody's going to heaven. But the Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians that God was reconciling man to himself through Jesus Christ on the cross, not counting their sins against them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Not counting man's sins against them. Did Jesus' death on the cross, did it cover all sins of all mankind? Yes. So is there a chance then that everyone, whether they believe or not, their sins are already forgiven and paid for by Jesus Christ? Yeah, amen. Does that mean everybody goes to heaven? No. If you're stupid enough to say no to that and think that you have to earn it, you're going to go to hell. Plain and simple, because God has pre-chosen that how it happens is through faith in Him alone. He's done it. But are you also saying that, I mean, I know if we confess our sins, we are faithful and just. Mm-hmm. Are you done it? We do not actually then ever have to ask them to forgive us our sins. We only need to confess your sins, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all my sins. You just confess. And thank him for his forgiveness, which has been appropriated through Jesus Christ. Now, there are those who have don't understand this truth, and they feel like God might or might not forgive me, even though they know they're going to heaven, but he may or may not forgive me. Or we think that Jesus has, a, uh, you know, a appropriated some kind of forgiveness account that we have to go cash in uh, in every now and get some more. That's not it. You are totally forgiven in Jesus Christ. So when you sin after salvation, you don't have to ask for forgiveness. You just say, Lord, I did it. I'm guilty, and I agree with you that what that was was wrong. Thank you for the fact that I've been covered through Jesus Christ. See the difference? So he just wants us to confess when we do it. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive because he but already he has. Say we got to start all over now. No, no, exactly. So, but are you catching this? Because I'm, I want you to catch this. If you will really understand the depth of this pre-plan of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit for salvation, it's also how you live your life. He has pre-planned that those who would come to him would come simply by faith, believing that God has taken care of it already and it's been done. 
But we need to live that way as well. But too many of us have been taught that Jesus died for our sins and now we've been forgiven. Uh, and now that you're saved, here's the things you have to do in order to be pleasing to God. You moved on me. I was pointing over there, but you were saying, yeah. You came to that place where when in your electrical situation, you said, Lord, I don't know what to do. Please do this. And when you, by faith, totally let it go, he did it. He did it. It's that same thing. So, Paul is not saying that he loved Jacob and hated Esau in the sense of, I've pre-chosen that I'm going to save Jacob and Esau's going to hell. He's just showing that God chose ahead of when they either had been born. You couldn't say it was that Jacob, Jacob was good and Esau was bad. Actually, if you look at their histories, if we were to look at their lives, especially the first part, we'd say Esau was good and Jacob was bad. And actually, when you see them come back together... Esau is the one who seems more like a Christian than Jacob. He's so afraid, he's sending the women and the children first, because if he's going to wait down, he's going to have to kill the kids and the wives first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when they get together, Esau says, God has blessed me. And it's forgiven. So, it had nothing to do with whether they're good or bad. To show that this is all something he's pre-chosen ahead of time, he said this. Now let's deal with this passage. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay? Now, um, go with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. If you're not for sure where Malachi is, it's the last book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3. Somebody want to read good and loud for the Recorder here, verses 2 and 3. Actually, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Thank you. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Okay, that's good. Now, now again, if you were to read this right off, your first reading is, well, he does hate Esau. All right? Now, stick with me. There's two things here you have to understand from this passage. First of all, Israel says, well, actually, God starts off and says to Israel, I have loved you. And their response is, oh, yeah? How have you loved us? You, know, you ever gotten that way sometimes? Someone will say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and right now you might be having trouble paying the bills, or uh, your relative might have just passed away, and you say to yourself, sure, you know, how has he loved me? Things are, things are just going to pieces right now. This is what Israel is doing right now. They're saying, well, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And then he reminds them, let's not Esau, Jacob's brother, yet I, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Now we're going to get to that hated word in just a second. But then he goes on to say, I turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. What he's referring to here, though, is the, the descendants of Esau were the Edomites. The Edomites, when the nation of Israel was being ransacked by the Babylonians, the Edomites actually stood by and let the Babylonians come through their land on their way to attack their brother, if you will, their relatives, and laughed. And so because they did this, God wiped the Edomites out. Now, but it wasn't because he hated the Edomites. It was because that was the judgment for their sin against, remember, those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And he knew, he already knew ahead of time. He already knew ahead of time, but at the same time, this Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated, the actual Hebrew word hated, it means more toward love less. Now again, we don't like that either. It doesn't sound real good to us. But the whole picture is simply this. Um, let's just say that there's uh, two cups sitting here, and I want a drink. They're both empty, and I have a, a can of Coke, and I pick one cup to pour my Coke in and drink out of it. I've chosen this one. Was it better than the other one? No, they're the same. But it appears that I like this one more than that one. Well, not the case. I've just chosen to accomplish my plan of quenching my thirst. Through this one. You understand what I'm saying? And this is the whole picture of what he's saying. It's not, I love Jacob, I hate Esau. No, I've chosen to work through this one. I've chosen not to work through this one. That's all. 
God loves everyone. All of mankind are open to His grace and His mercy. I mean, you're going to see a little bit later in Romans, he says, God has bound all men over to disobedience, that He might have mercy on them all. So when he said, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it, because of our English translation, we think, oh, he's pre-chosen, I love him, I don't love him. That's not it at all. Okay? You're about to say something. No. Okay. That correlation you were making between Jesus' response to Mary and, and Martha, where he gave theology to Martha, and, but he wept when he said the same things to Mary. Mm-hmm. Did he love her more? I mean, is this... Is this yeah, the, they, they, they had a different relationship for sure. He didn't love Mary more than he loved Martha. I mean, you have to understand the heart of God. It's, it yes. shows how, that he meets each of us in the place we need him, and how he needs, how we need to see him and relate with him. Look, let me get, let's illustrate this again here. There's two chairs there. If you were to sit in one, not the other, why? They're both the same. You just chose to sit in this one, not that one. Did you love this one and hate that one? No, it's just that's the one you chose to work through. You sovereignly chose, this one gets the pleasure of my bum. Whatever you want to put it that way. You understand what I'm saying? This is all this is all that Paul is saying, that God had pre-chosen to show that it's him and his choosing, his plan, that has nothing to do with us. You know what's so sad? You talk to most unbelievers today. What do they think they have to do to be pleasing to God? Be good. Be good. Some think they're good enough, which is a joke. Yet at the same time, they think if they're good enough, God will accept them. Satan has duped them into thinking it has something to do with us. Actually, the more I really understand grace, the more I understand my sinfulness. As God has really opened my eyes to his grace, at the same time he's opened my eyes to my sinfulness. And it's helped me understand his grace even more. But years ago, I used to think, oh God, I'll be better. And hope that you'll open some of that forgiveness account. It's not that way. He says, my son, you're already forgiven. Have been. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He gave him the money and let him go off. And as soon as he came back, before he even said anything, hugged him, said, let's throw a party. Had nothing to do with the fact that he was good or bad. He'd always been his son. Folks, let me just tell you, your heavenly Father loves you. And he, because of sin, had to provide reconciliation, atonement. He had pre-planned that he would do it himself through Jesus Christ. And that was his plan from the beginning. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of all mankind. But how God has pre-chosen it to be is that the only ones who will be saved are the ones who accept the Bible, who don't try to do it on their own. Go back. Jim, isn't it amazing that every lesson you keep hitting home with the same thing? The love of God? Yes, and we don't have to do anything. I mean, every yes. time you teach. Yeah, we you get to, if we have time, when you get to the end, it'll really blow your brains when I show you something God showed me this week that I had never seen before. So, But it, it really hits that home. Let's move on then, okay? Verses 14 through uh, 29. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? He knows that using this illustration, there are going to be those who say, sounds like you chose one over the other. Yeah, it's not fair. Is God unjust? Not at all, he says. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Who's the emphasis here? Is it man or is God? It is simply God. Isn't it sad that most people that are unbelievers look at us Christians and think, well, those people that do this and don't do that, that we're righteous because we're good people and we don't drink or we don't do this or we don't... You know what I'm saying? They look at us and they think, well, you're the ones who do and don't, that our righteousness is because we're gooder than them. We haven't had to... We haven't preached the truth of gospel. Our friends need to understand, not by us doing what they do and living like they do, but just letting them know, it has nothing to do with the fact that I live a good life. Does that have anything to do with the fact that God has provided a way for me to be forgiven and I've received it by faith? That's it. It's relationship. It's relationship. That's what that one sentence says. It sure does. It's not man's effort or desire, but on God's mercy. So the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now stick with me here. Paul's about to use some illustrations here that again look like they contradict everything we just said. Therefore God is mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Now again, in this passage, you could try to read it through the filter of God's chosen who, and, and he's rejected others pre-chosen. Now keep in mind, Paul has already laid the foundation that this is God's sovereign choice that those who would be right with him would come through faith in the promise. That's what he's dealing with. That's at the root of it. But along with it, he says we need to have an attitude that says, what if he did choose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell? The scripture does not say that that's what he's done. He just says, what if? And, go ahead. The simplicity of it is, we just have to get to that point where whatever he decides, it doesn't matter. He's God, period. The fact that he explains it to us and lets us know is a blessing. It helps our little finite minds. Mm-hmm. But it all boils down to, he's God, I'm not. My opinion doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, that's the whole point. Man wants to have a say in who's saved and how. Do we not? I mean, that's what a lot of the wars are being fought about and, and issues are going on. We want to have a say in who's saved and how. Paul's saying this is God's thing that he planned before he even made the first bush. Alright? So keep this in mind. This is God's plan. And if you've got a problem with the fact that he's doing it simply by faith in his promise... Take it up with him. But he has the right to do it however he wants. That's Christ's parable with the workers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What Chris just said in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. He agreed with these. I'll pay you so much if you work today for me. They do. He gets them more and more. And by the end of the day, the last group only works an hour. He pays them first, pays them the same amount as he paid, he agreed to pay the people who worked all day. Well, they're sitting there drooling, thinking, oh, dude, let's do the math here. Yeah, they only worked an hour. We're gonna, and they got paid the same amount. And they were angry. And he said, wait, I haven't been unfair to you. Didn't I pay you what I said I would? you got a problem with my generosity. See, you thought, since you worked harder and longer, you were going to get paid more. You don't understand. I'm showing you my heart. It has nothing to do with how hard you worked or how long you worked. Or how good you can give or me how grace, I don't really want them to have grace. Yeah, exactly. You give me grace, but I don't want them to have grace. Is it? But like you just said, it has nothing to do with us or how good we've been. But let's be honest. Right now, don't you still struggle with that a little bit, even as a Christian? Something will happen and you don't like it. And your first thought is, what did I do wrong? He's mad at me. He's expecting me to do something. You don't understand. It never had anything to do with you. It's all about Him and His grace. And when you really let that sink in, the freedom, the joy that comes out of it. I see Kathy over here nodding. She and Ken have been going through this Grace Walk workbook. And when, it, just, it just it makes sense when you really start to understand it. Alright? Now, let's keep moving because there's some things I think God wants. How are we doing time-wise here? Alright, good deal. Alright. I'm just going to... Um, Let's go to chapter 9, verses 30-33. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith? 
But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? I find myself reading that and going, duh. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly what I've been saying all along. I'm going to read it again. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let me tell you something. There are many people in churches today who are going to go to hell. And it's simply because they may say they believe in Jesus, but they also think how they live will determine whether or not they get into heaven too. I've talked to too many people of the generation that have been raised in the church over the last 50 to 100 years who, when I talk to them, as I travel around, I actually remember sitting down with this wonderful couple, and yet at the same time they were oblivious to the truth of the gospel. And we're at this dinner table, and I said, Let me, tell, me, tell me your story. I like to hear people's testimonies. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And they're like, well, of course. You know, I've been going to church my whole life. And then I said, well, well how do you know you're going to heaven? Because I believe in Jesus and I've been living a good life. I looked him in the eye and I said, unfortunately, that's the wrong answer. Because you added something of what you did to it. You said it's believing in Jesus and you living a good life. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. If you had said, my, because Jesus took care of my sins, that's a great answer. But if you think you're living good, is a part of it. And they literally sat there and argued with me. Here's what they said. God expects us to do... Our part. You ever heard that one? I want to show you something this week that God, that God showed me this week that blows that out of the water. The whole, all our lives, we have been carrying the church. God expects me to do my part. I'm going to show you that I've come to realize your part is to simply trust Him. That's it. If He has something He wants you to do, He'll make that clear. You then step out in faith. But until then, you don't do anything until He tells you because you just rest in it. Alright? Go with me real quick to Mark chapter 8. Verses 14 through 21. Now, for those of you who may or may not know, this, at this point in the, the story, uh, Jesus has already fed the 5,000. Remember there was 5,000 men, not countless men and children. And the disciples said, send them away so they don't faint on the way. And uh, Jesus says, tell you what, you feed them. And they go, we don't have enough food here to feed all these people. He said, what do you got? And John's Gospel shows us they had a little boy's lunch, which was five loaves and two fish. They fed all the people. How much was left over? Twelve basketfuls. One for each knucklehead, as we've talked about, you know, to learn the lesson, as they each picked up a basketful of leftovers. Then a little bit later, and this is Mark chapter 8 we're going to be looking at here, but before that you get to that, there's another story of the feeding of the 4,000 you see in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. We're not going to read there, but in this situation, they're in another town not long after this, and Jesus this time initiates the feeding and says, I don't want to send them away hungry. Tell you what, let's feed these people before they go home. The disciples who had just picked up the 12 basketfuls said, wait a minute, how are we going to feed them? I don't have enough food to feed all these people. And don't laugh at them. You do the same thing. I've watched you and me react every month when bills come. And we watch God provide and miraculously take care of us. But then next month the bills are going to come and we're going to say, how are we going to pay our bills? Lord? We're the same way. Okay? So then... After being of the 4,000, there's seven. He says, well, how much do you have? And they said, seven loaves. And again, he feeds over 4,000 people, and there's seven basketfuls left up, picked up, left over. Now, look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? In other words, don't you get it? In the feeding of the 5,000, 
Who did it? Christ. He did it, right? What did they bring to the equation? A boy's life. Exactly. They went in their lunch. <laughs> but all along, we've been taught in the church, you, God expects me to do my part. I do my part, and then God does his part. I have to do my part, then God will... Be. No! It's hurt us. It's all about Him. What was your part in salvation? Say thank you. <laughs> right? He didn't save you because you were good. Actually, He takes pride in saving the worst. Because it gives Him even more glory. So when you fed feeding the, the 4,000, how much you pick up? Seven basketfuls. Again, what did they do? The only thing I see that they did was when he said, tell them to sit down, we're going to feed them. And they didn't know how he was going to do it. They acted in faith and obedience to go tell this thousands of people, have a seat, Jesus wants to feed you. And I always picture them going out into the crowd and someone saying, how are we going to, I, I mean, tell me, tell me, Peter, how, how are we going to do that? I can say, Peter saying, don't ask me, I have no idea. You know, but just do it. You know, it's like you call an electrician when you don't have the money. That's dumb. <laughs> God expects you to be more wise. No. Then they're in the boat. They forgot to bring something to eat. They didn't do their part. And Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees inherited. Because he used the word yeast. And of course God knows what's going on in their head. And he used the word yeast on purpose. But the word yeast, is to, those of you that think you know it's a little bit of yeast, will affect the whole batch. And he's just saying, watch out for their false teaching. Just a little bit of it. Well, boy, isn't that truth in the church today. The Christians were misinterpreting scripture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were. Even the word was saying it. Yes, they were misinterpreting it. So, because he used the word yeast, they're all sitting there in a boat going, he's mad because we didn't do our part. We didn't pack a lunch. And he heard us grumbling. He heard grumbling at him. And Jesus says, why are you talking about not having food? We're sorry, Jesus. We didn't do our part. We should have prepared better. We should have planned better. We need to have been better stewards. No. Just give me what you got. I don't got anything. Perfect. I'm going to trust you. I had a man come to me uh, after I finished preaching at, at a church on Sunday. And uh, I was preaching on when we were looking for the will of God, stop looking. And God's going to show up and show you message I got really opened my, my eyes to and I'm just pumped about it. And the fact that we've been for years taught to go find the will of God. And actually God's opened my eyes in His Word to the fact that actually we're not supposed to go find the will of God. The will of God will be revealed to us very clearly. As you really think about all the stories in the Bible, when God had a plan for someone's life, and oh, by the way, the Bible says He's got a plan for everybody's life. But whenever He had a plan for someone's life, He showed up. What was David doing when God revealed His plan for him to become the king of Israel? What was Samuel? He was sitting there tending sheep. And God sent someone to go fetch him. Because Samuel was going to anoint him to be the next king of Israel. Peter, James, and John, what were they doing when Jesus showed up? <laughs> Jesus went to the shore and said, Come follow me. How about Matthew, the tax collector? Jesus went to his office. Right? Woman at the well. The Bible says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Here she was, thinking she'd been disqualified because of her past, because of her life. And Jesus went out of his way to go find her and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The demoniac, man with the legion of demons, he wasn't even mentally capable of finding God's will for his life. Jesus took a boat to go find him. So he healed the man. The man said, I want to go with you. Jesus said, no, my plan for you is you go back home and witness to your family. Jesus got the boat and headed on to the next place. Joshua's become the new leader of Israel. He's about to defeat Jericho, or at least try to defeat Jericho. Doesn't know what to do. Who shows up? God. With the plan. Gideon's hiding from the Midianites in the wine press. Threshing wheat in the wine press for fear of the Jews. And God shows up and says, Hello, mighty warrior. And you can picture Gideon saying, uh, Look around. <laughs> he ain't here. <laughs> and would you keep your voice down? <laughs> I don't want them to find us. But he wasn't even looking. He was afraid. Even after the resurrection, Jesus keeps showing up to his disciples. In the upper room, they're locked with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. He walks through the walls and says, I'm not done with you guys. And then when they decide to go off fishing, he shows up on the shore. Folks, listen to me. For years we've heard, God has a plan for your life. That's true. And then we've been told to go find God's will for your life. I'm going to tell you, good luck not finding God's will for your life. Because he loves you so much, he will reveal it. And as I was preaching on this on Sunday... 
I've led him to then realize he will show you, he will reveal it, and it's going to happen. Because Philippians 1 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you will what? He'll finish it. See, he didn't just save you. The Bible says he saved you, and he also had pre planned good works that he wants to accomplish through you. That was all in his mind before he even saved you. So, if in Acts 17.25, God's predetermined where we would be born. The Bible says that. And he's predetermined when we would be born. And he's the one who calls us to salvation. No one seeks God. He seeks us. And he then saves us. Why all of a sudden do we think, after God has chosen when I'm going to be born, where I'm going to be born, call me to salvation, have a plan for my life, why all of a sudden now is it on me to find it? Because we're still human. We want to be in control. Because we want to be on control. It's not on us. So I'm going to tell you to chill out. So I told this, these people, so that's preaching to them. This man comes up afterwards and he gives me a hug. He even kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> it was a holy kiss. It was a holy kiss. This is what he said. He said, thank you for not telling me to go find my spiritual gift. He said, we've been taught to go find our spiritual gift. He said, all I know is this. This is what God's laid on my heart. And he shared how he had, hadn't had a job since December. He's living off of Social Security. And he supports seven children around the world, five with compassion and two with another Christian minister. And then he said, I felt led of God to give WCIF $100 a month. And I didn't know where that money was going to come from. I just said, God, that's on my heart. I believe it's from you. I'm going to give a pledge. And he pledged money he didn't have. Then, by the end of the Pericarathon, he felt like God told him to up it. <laughs> So he called him up on the last day on Wednesday, the sheriff on and says, I know I pledged $100, I'm pledging $120 a month. And he said, God, you're going to have to pay this bill. He said, Wednesday, he made his pledge. Thursday, out of the blue, a check from nowhere for $4,000 came. And he said, thank you, Lord. There's the money for the pledge that he had made. What is our part? Faith. Trust that he's going to do it. Thank you. And thank you. So, what's going on in your life? Lots of stuff. How's it all work out? God said He'd never leave me nor forsake me. He said He'd meet all my needs. He said He'd walk me through it. If you've seen Him do the miracle in your past, and by the way, if you're alive now and at this stage in history, He has. How many times have He got to remind you? Because then the next, we're all the same. When the next trouble comes, what do we do? We panic, we worry, we fret. How are we going to feed these people? How are we going to pay our bills? How can we do our part? How can we do our part? God must be waiting on me. Your part is to trust Him. It's going to look foolish, it's going to look stupid. And when you trust Him, He'll say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Okay, here we go. And He miraculously, miraculously provides. Oh, by the way, Paul says in chapter 9, guys, I just told you about this awesome plan God has, and it's by faith, not by works. And that brings up a nagging question. What about Israel? Did his plan for Israel fail? Has he neglected, has he abandoned Israel? No. But you've got to understand, if you think it's because of you, you're going to miss it. It's all because of him. It's all because of him. Why did he love Jacob and hate Esau? Just to show you that it had nothing to do with them, whether they're good or bad, he pre-chose before they were born. To show that it's his pre-plan. Does he love Esau? Of course he does. He just chose to work through Jacob to show that it's his choice, his plan. All we do is surrender to it. Could he have chosen to send some people to hell by free choice? And some people to go to heaven to show his glory? Yes, he could have. The Bible didn't say he did. But he could have. Because this is all about him. But the good news is, as you're going to see as we go on further, he'll start dealing with the few other things that we dealt with at the beginning. But for tonight, understand this is his sovereign plan, and it has been from before he created the creation of the world that those who would be a part of his plan would do it simply by saying thank you in faith and totally trusting him. Any questions? You see, on top of that, he gave us a choice, too. Yes, you have a choice. You do have a choice. Jesus is deathless for the whole world. But those who go to hell are the ones that are stupid enough to say no. I need to do it myself. Remember the story of the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22? And the guy tried to get in on his own righteousness. Remember, he didn't have the garment that the master would give you when you were invited to the banquet. He would then, you showed up, he'd put a robe on you to show that you were under his righteousness, you were his covering. And the guy came in on his own. 
without the garment, and he was cast out. This is a man trying to do it on his own righteousness. How many people today think, when I stand before God, he's going to weigh my good and my bad, and I'm going to be okay? How sad that is. Well, or, you know, there are people who have accepted by faith and then have gone on to lead lives that aren't what he, what we would say would be right. That doesn't change. It doesn't change it. We would sometimes say, well, that person probably wasn't saved. That's not our call. That's not our call, right? It has nothing to do with how good or bad you are, folks. God's not measuring your performance. You know what God's opened my eyes to just recently? Because the church is full of people that think God's still measuring our performance. We're measuring each other's performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I first started reading the Bible, and I read where Abraham was chosen by God to start a nation with God's people, God's chosen people, and say, how is that fair? Mm-hmm. This world's full of people. Why would he choose that man to start a nation with just his own people? Mm-hmm. It's God's plan. It was God's plan. But again, as we see now, it was his plan to reveal through this nation of people how God's plan works by faith. They were the conduit. They were the conduit. He found a way to include us. He sure did. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Oh, by the way, the Bible says that God's going to use the Gentiles being grafted in to bring jealousy in the nation of Israel in the last days. When they really understand that it's by faith. Like Paul just said, we didn't do anything to earn it. What are we doing getting the salvation? The Jews have been saying, we're busting our vanity to get salvation. And you're just going to give it to them? Yeah, that's how it's always been. He did take particular ones, and we have the opportunity to follow their lives, but it was through faith. I mean, still, he knew who had the faith who would follow. I mean, so we... We get to see because we get to look back. Well, yes, yeah, that's true, but it's more than he did. You can't just say he knew at the faith to follow. Yes, he did. But there are people that he gave the opportunity and they said no. But he knew they would say I mean, his foreknowledge doesn't change our free will. You know? But it's the promise of faith. I mean, just keep going back to that. The ones that he chose were the ones who were going to accept. That's it. It's the promise of faith. Remember what we talked about with the Gideon story. When he said they had 32,000 men, God said, tell anybody that's afraid that they can go home. 22,000 went home. There's now 10,000 left. God said, now there's still too many. Take the number down to the river. The ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Did they have a choice on how they're going to drink? Were they going to kneel or were they going to laugh? The men had a choice. They had a choice how they're going to drink. But God had pre-chosen the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. In the same way, everybody has a choice whether or not you say yes or no to Jesus. But Jesus has said also, the ones that have said yes to me are the ones I've chosen. The method, the how, has been pre-chosen. The who has not been pre-chosen. Yeah, the method is faith. The method is faith. And by definition, you can't have faith if there's no choice. That's correct. Did you hear that? Without there, you can't have faith without a choice. You're forced, and it doesn't matter if you. That's exactly it. Yeah. faith at all, but it's forced. It's not faith. If you don't, if you don't have a choice, it's not really faith. And where I used to trip up is that I would think I would forget he began the work in me. I didn't have to begin this work. He began it in me, and I didn't find Jesus. He found me. That's it. And then Satan comes and says, "Okay, now it's up to you to." Fill in the blanks. No, it's not. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to get even more clear in the next few weeks. So we'll see you first Tuesday in, in April. Were you going to give us a little preview of what you're saying about um, what's going on in the world? Or was that That's coming up in Chapter 11. It's going to come up in Chapter 11. But let me just say this. Um, be watching the nation of Israel right now. Be watching what's going on in the G20 summit over there in Europe. Be watching North Korea and this so-called satellite, they say. Uh, a lot of things could happen in the next week that are pretty, let's just call them catalysts for speeding up the last days. I heard Becky make a comment when we read something tonight. She, she, she went, <clears throat> when, when we read something. Uh, it, was, it, was verse, it was verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's going to happen very fast. And it's already picking up speed. It, and when it does happen, boom, it's going to happen. Alright? So, behold, I come quickly. That's what it means. It doesn't mean... Uh, yeah, it means when it happens, it's going to happen fast. Are you not so excited? You can... I'm ready. I'm <laughs> So that's all I'll say for now. Just watch those those uh, developments. 
Um, but pieces are being put into place. We'll talk a lot more about it when we get to chapter 11 and God's plan for Israel in the last days. We pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and open up your word. I thank you for the fact that if we're willing to let you, uh, you will help us to see the depth of the truth of your word. Lord, it's easy to just read a verse and come to a quick conclusion or try to build a theology that doesn't match with the whole of your word, but we've taken a verse or two and we think they say something. Lord, thank you for the fact that if we're willing, you can help us to see the depth of the fact that you are sovereign. You have pre-chosen, but it's not the who, but it's the how. And Lord, that's just the way you've done it. If the Jews have a problem with it, or we have a problem with it, or any man thinks, well, you should at least let these people in because they're good, or these Buddhists are looking for God, that should be enough. Lord, may we understand that your word said tonight that that's not what you said. That you pre-chosen that those who come would come to faith, come through faith, and faith in your provision through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And Lord, we just pray that we would not only understand this truth, be able to communicate it, but Lord, that we would allow it to sink into our hearts, and that we would not only trust you fully for our salvation, but we would trust you fully in every aspect of our lives, that we would honestly be people who are not anxious about anything. But with everything, prayer and supplication, we'll make our requests known to you, and you'll give us the peace that passes understanding. Lord, forgive us. Well, thank you for the fact that you have already forgiven us and you know our, our frame and that we're dust. And when we see the disciples, after picking up 12 basketfuls, uh, panic when the next situation arises and there's even less people to feed and there's more food to start with, they still panic. Lord, we do the same thing. But Lord, thank you for the fact that you lovingly will finish what you started and you are making us more like Jesus every day because you said you would. Lord, we thank you for that fact. May we rest in you in these days to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.